Hi, and welcome to the latest episode in our Cap Talks HR series. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Erica First, founder of Moodly. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thank you, Anthony. Lovely to be here. So, Erica, today we're going to talk about how you can use your mood to enhance your performance. But before we get into the detail, do you want to give us our listeners a bit of a background about you? Sure. Um, I should probably explain how I got into mood and with what authority I speak about it. Um, I actually come from 25 years of experience in the advertising industry. Uh, I was the global head of advertising, media, and digital at Ray-Ban from 2005 to 2015. And in 2015, I had a burnout episode where I lost vision in my right eye and ended up in the hospital for 10 days. And after multiple tests and actually even a couple of years, um, doctors ultimately concluded that it was stress related. Uh, So I took some time off my career to get healthy, kind of get myself back into um, good sorts. And, but I was, I was really curious about stress and how stress could have caused uh, vision loss in my, my own eyes. So I actually went back to school to study it and I did the postgraduate program um, at King's College in neuroscience of mental health. And then I went on to get a master's of organizational psychology from uh, London Metropolitan. And it was in these studies that I uncovered an entire world about stress and mood um, and creativity, which is sort of what intrigued me and and drew me towards it, um, using creativity to influence your mood and manage stress. Uh, And so when I saw that, excuse me, and when I learned all this information, for me, I almost felt guilty not sharing it with the rest of the world. And so I started putting together my app, which is Moodly, and then built some courses uh, to train people in organizations on the dynamics of stress, less about stress techniques and more about the dynamics. Because once you understand what's happening, why, and the effect it has, you can actually make your own choices on what your best strategies are, as opposed to taking ones that you find on the internet. But that's kind of my background in a, in a nutshell, <laughs> why I'm here. Okay, so, so it's more about uh, kind of prevention rather than like curing it afterwards kind of thing you're, you're focusing on how we can look at stress prior absolutely to, to... because okay. they call stress it's called the silent killer because you don't see it until uh it shows up in a very serious way and a lot of the times things that are stress related illnesses that are stress related um aren't apparent to us there there's an estimate out there that says that anywhere from 80 percent to 90 percent of doctors visits that have to do with illness are stress related. Um, And so once it's hit that stage, you know, in epidemiology, there's three stages. You can do prevention, you can do management, or you're treating symptoms. Um, By the time you've reached the last phase of treating symptoms, it's quite far gone. So really the best way to deal with stress is prevention. Um, and there's so many small things we can do to prevent how our body reacts to stress, but unfortunately there hasn't been a culture of teaching us this until very recently. So, and that's interesting because that really takes us onto the topic of today, doesn't it? So, um, so we're here to talk about mood. <laughs> Almost <laughs> like I knew we were going there. <laughs> yeah. So that's an amazing segue. Where did that come from? So, so talking about mood, so why is mood so important to us? 
Okay. So we think of moods as like, we all have them. Um, you know, we can have a bad day. We can have a good day. We can be elated. We can be depressed. There's actually quite a large range of moods that we have. Um, even though very few of us have a, the skill of emotional granularity, which means the ability to identify which mood you are in. Cause like being disappointed is different than feeling rejected, you know, and they all have sort of different shades, but we sort of quantify or qualify them in five categories. Um, excited, happy, uh, depressed, angry, et cetera, et cetera, um, or scared. And so what happens is all of the systems in our body overlap. Uh, so it's, we don't talk about digestion as a thing on its own or stress as a thing on its own. Um, first of all, there is one stress response. So you will respond and your body will respond in the same way if you are in the savannah and come, you know, face the cyber tooth or whatever it's called, the, the, the tiger, as you will if you had your eye on a bagel at Starbucks and somebody takes it, right? So your body reacts the exact same way. So we have one stress response and it affects every single system in your body. Uh, and this is why stress is so, so difficult and pervasive because how it starts, you know, you could then end up having too much glucose, which can lead to diabetes or your heart rate can be exaggerated for a long time, which leads to heart problems. Um, and so all of this happens uh, stress has a cognitive element to it, meaning that in any situation, we make an instantaneous cognitive decision about how to react. Like I am either able or unable to respond accurately to what's happening to me. Like if I said to you tomorrow, like spur the moment, tomorrow you have to go and teach 10 kids how to color, that might stress you because maybe you don't like kids, but you're not going to worry about your ability to do it. However, if I told you tomorrow, you have to go meet with the prime minister of the UK and explain yourself on something, then you have a stressful response because you're like, oh my God, what if I do bad? What are the consequences? And we have a negativity bias that, that leads us more towards assuming the worst as opposed to assuming the best. So this cognitive aspect, how we respond to the things that happen in our life or whether we decide we're able or unable to respond properly is all influenced by our mood because our mood is the sort of the highest filter through which we process our entire day. If you wake up and you had a great coffee and the sun is beautiful and birds are chirping and it feels like you're in a Disney movie, if something happens to you while you're walking to work, you might brush it off and be like, that's okay because I'm in a good mood. However, if you're in a bad mood, right? Just got a notification of a fine that you have to pay for a parking ticket and it's raining outside and you're pretty sure you're gonna be late and that meeting starts at nine and there's no way you're gonna make it. If something happens to you on the way to work, you'll either be defensive or angry or look for someone to blame. So it's not the things that happen to us, it's how we respond to them. And how we choose to respond to them 
which we do automatically. We don't cognitively think, am I going to you know, be a jerk about this or am I going to be nice? Uh, is 100% influenced by the mood that we find ourselves in. There is a scientist who, who described mood as the filter that defines the, what is possible for us in life. Um, and so it's actually far more important than, than we may know. And, and that's fantastic. So, so mood being the highest point here, and it sounds like there's a, almost like a threshold that if you're in a more positive mood, that threshold is higher before stress kicks in and everything. So what do we do to start thinking about managing our moods or can you manage your moods? Yes. Well, as I said, there is, um, so in science, Sorry, I started like four sentences there. <laughs> in science, there is something called emotional self-regulation. And it is one of the four cornerstones of emotional intelligence. And it talks about the ability to A, recognize your mood state, you know, so the ability to say, hey, I'm actually in a bad mood. And this sounds silly, but the, major the majority of us are not able to identify how we're feeling until after the fact, right? Or until we've done something that perhaps we're not entirely proud of. Like we're in a bad mood and we snap at a colleague or we snap at a loved one. And then they're like, whoa, why did I do that? Like, I didn't mean that. And, and then we get, it precipitates into feeling guilty and shame and blah, blah, blah. And there's, the, there's a whole downward spiral that can come from those things. Um, but the, the ability to recognize how you're feeling and actually get yourself out of it is a learnable, teachable skill. Um, first, in terms of recognizing how you feel. Actually, it starts a little bit earlier. It starts with recognizing what triggers you. So if I know that every time my mother-in-law calls me, I snap, <laughs> you know, I can at least prepare myself mentally before it happens to kind of get in a good place or just know it's like, okay, it's her again. I'm going to like consciously make an extra effort to stay calm. And, and you can do that. Um, as I said, it's a teachable skill and it's uh, your mood being so connected to your physiology also means that if you're in a good mood, your digestion stays the same, your heart rate is stays the same, um, your uh, serotonin levels are good. In bad moods, all that goes off and you tighten up your stomach and you stop digesting, which can block nutrients, cause weight gain, increases, blocks the flow of serotonin to the brain, uh, floods the system with cortisol. So there's all sorts of like really negative things that happen when you're in a bad mood or when you have a, like a full on stress response. Um, and, and when you're, let's say the body's in its perfect, most optimal performing state when you're in a good mood. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you mentioned right at the start about self-regulation as, as part of emotional intelligence. And I'm thinking of all those leadership programs that, that look at emotional intelligence and actually look at self-awareness, but quite often, they just concentrate on what behaviors are you doing as a leader that um, that then affects people around you and then what right. behaviors could be different. It never tracks back or quite often doesn't track back beyond that to actually the root cause of why are you doing that behavior in the first place? Not just right. So it goes back to your management bit, actually what's the cause before that? Absolutely. And, and this is why, you know, one of the things I focus on really heavily is 
the dynamics um, behind mood, the dynamics behind stress, behind our responses. Because if you, the behaviors are just an externalization of what's going on within. I mean, this is classic behavioralism <laughs> from uh, psychology school. Um, but there is, because of the neuroscience and how our brain is and the brains that we have anthropologically inherited through evolution, are, are designed to function in a very specific way. And unless we learn how they operate, why they operate that way, it's very, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to say you're always rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's, you can only solve a problem when you understand where it is at the root. Otherwise it's just going to show up somewhere else. Um, so that's why in the, for me, part of mood management is not just techniques. I mean, of course the techniques are important, but unless you cognitively understand the why things are happening to you, you don't necessarily do them or you may doubt them or it may, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I have been on a diet since I was 11 years old, basically, <laughs> because I am, I love food and I live in Italy, so it's hard to avoid the pasta. Um, but I had a doctor once tell me when I, a nutritionist to get up every hour and move. Right. But she didn't tell me why she just told me what to do. And so I did it. But then after a while I was like, eh, because it didn't, it wasn't meaningful to me. Then I spoke to another nutritionist years later who told me that, um, like the lymph cells or the fat cells after an hour, they rest. And so they go like, they go to sleep basically. And so if you move every hour, if you get up and move around, this keeps them from falling asleep, which helps your fat metabolism continue. Now, then I understood what was happening and I now had a why and I was like, oh, okay. So then I should do that. <laughs> you know, and th th There's the connection. So this is kind of, to me, the whole point of mood management is really to learn the dynamics of what's going on in your brain and in your body so that you actually have that motivation to then go through with the behavioral changes that are necessary. And, and, and that's great. And and I think this is the first podcast, by the way, for Tap Talks HR, where we're doing uh, like talking about diets. Um, so that's fantastic. <laughs> um, but uh, when I'm thinking about some of the work we've done recently around resilience, it, it's based on a foundation of positive psychology. And actually, likewise, in that it's about actually getting under the skin and actually about understanding the triggers to 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 the reframing of what's going on in your head and everything and it yes. sounds like some of this mood management is actually leaning on almost the area of positive psychology isn't it about actually if you get into a virtuous circle it's, it's beneficial yes well obviously uh, the the more positive you are and the more uh you can get into that positive state the healthier your body is I am not, um, I wouldn't say I'm an advocate for positive psychology simply because there is sort of a space where that becomes toxic positivity, where you assume that that's the only, like your aspiration is only to be happy. That is actually not true. Our body is not designed to stay in happiness, nor is it designed to stay in anger. It's meant to stay central, neutral, which we call homeostasis. And so even if that's why, you know, we say happiness is fleeting. It's like, yes, <laughs> it's, it's meant to be because it actually, believe it or not, it actually puts stress on your system. It raises your heart rate. There are similar symptoms between 
an anger attack and joy. Um, they have different expressions because one will make you more positive and will release endorphins and, and good neurotransmitters, whereas the other one will release the unpleasant ones. But the effects on the body are quite similar. You still have an elevated heart rate. Your body can't stay with an elevated heart rate. So it has to adjust that. So if you're too happy for a long time, it's like, oh, let, I need to calm this woman down a little bit because it wants to stay in a neutral space, which is the homeostasis. So I wouldn't say it's like all about get out there and just be positive about everything. To me, it's really about the emotional self-regulation, being able to put yourself in the mood you need to be in at will, because maybe sometimes, you know, uh, I don't want to come out against meditation and mindfulness because I think they're wonderful and they're, they're doing great things for everybody. But there are times in our life where being calm is not the right response, right? We don't want to, we don't want to numb down everybody because sometimes you should be upset at the situation. Sometimes people have crossed your boundaries and you need to say something because otherwise it's bubbling inside of you and it has no externalization. What you want to learn how to do is be able to be angry, but then be able to turn it off or know that I have a meeting and be able to put yourself into a confident state and then be able to go back to being neutral. You know, so it's that flexibility of I feel this way, but I now know how to make myself feel that way or I this happened to me. Now I know how to turn it off. So it's about being in control of your emotions rather than being a slave to your emotions. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. why I suppose it's called mood management because you're managing which way you're, you're going. So, uh, so yeah, I totally agree about the uh, positivity thing. And in, in my org psych masters, the example was, do you really want a very positive airline pilot where the engines are just cut out? <laughs> I'm sure it'll all work out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be absolutely fine. Don't worry. Um, so uh, that's great. And we're here today to talk about mood and we yes. have a slight angle about it, looking at as a, as a way to help you with your performance. Yes. So, so how does we use our mood to help us with performance? Okay, so there is... Um, a lot, of, there's a lot of science. There is a ton of uh, scientific evidence that shows that when you are um, in a positive mood or when you are more positive, uh, you are more creative. You're able to imagine future possibilities. Um, your associative thinking is uh, works better. You are more collaborative with others. And that when you are in a negative mood, basically what happens is you've got your back brain, which is the reactionary old, old angry guy who wants to keep you safe. And then you have the front brain, which is like, let's discover, let's explore. And when you're stressed or when you're in a bad mood, basically you give the keys to the car to the old angry guy in the back. And he's like, I'm only going to do what I've ever done. I don't want to, and I'm super attentive to new threats coming in. And so the entire brain and the entire body is very focused simply on keeping you alive in that moment. It is not interested in what the possible, what happy possibilities there could be in the future. It is not interested in trying out new techniques. It wants to do tested, tried and true. And it is not interested in helping or getting help from anyone else. It shuts down. And so you become a very poorly functioning machine because the most of us are hired for our abilities also to think. 
And this is why people in the thought workers category are actually most susceptible to burnout because it's that dynamic uh, that is most influenced in, in stress. Um, so it's, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought there. No, it's totally cool. So, so you're essentially, uh, you're saying with performance, it's, it's the front of the brain that, that, yes. that makes the difference. And you would, yeah, so carry on. That, yeah, that's it. I'm back. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I go off on a tangent and then I'm like in the middle of the field, like, where did, how did I get here? Um, so the what happens is you want to, in the mood management, what we do is we learn how to turn off, like recognize that the, the angry guy's uh, driving the bus and that we need the the more open possibilistic person to do it um, because when you're when you're in that mind state pos there are more possibilities and and you are willing to resolve problems and you are willing to look at new things and you are also willing to experiment so actually you perform better at your job when you are in a good mood and you perform poor, poorly, in fact, most of the presenteeism statistics are around this, meaning that people aren't working properly because they're grumbling about a fight that they just had with their boss. Or um, I did a survey once about like things that bother you in the workplace. And there's the typical things like, it was really funny because 95% of the people said I work harder than all my other colleagues, which, so if everybody's saying it, like who's doing the work, you know? <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, so we all have this perception that we're doing more than, than everybody else, but it's like, you know, this, uh, they took my yogurt or they keep a dirty workspace or they come in late, or I don't want to have to, to do that. And so there's all these things that happen in the day that, put you in a bad mood and then you ruminate about them and you sit there and you think about it and that just keeps you in that bad mood and as long as you're in that bad mood you are not performing at your optimum level and this is where employers lose money because they hire someone for their great brain but their great brain isn't accessible to them because they're in a stressful situation or they're um they're in a bad mood and and that's really interesting because I think that connects into some of the fears and worries in organizations at the moment with um, uh, obviously, well, we're recording this in 2021. If you're listening to this 10 years in the future, how was World War Three? Um, how am but, I doing? <laughs> yeah, but uh, my younger self. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting because with the, um, the increase possibly of hybrid working, of a remote working we've seen with a number of different sectors in the last year, then actually one of the concerns is actually are people being as productive at work? And actually, a lot of that's down to actually how happy are people, how content are people in their lives at the moment? And surely that has a mood element to it. Well, the hybrid working brings with it a whole other set of considerations and concerns. Um, obviously, we lose the the tension in the workplace element, but then we have motivation problems because unfortunately there is also scientific evidence that we work harder when there's people looking at us. Um, on the flip side and feeding into that, there is now, uh, there was a study done between LinkedIn and one of the mental health associations uh, that said that people now feel like they're calling it e-presenteeism where people now feel like they have to be on call 24 seven just to prove to their boss that they're working and, and they're, um, they're 
doing something, you know, so be, since there's not that FaceTime anymore. Uh, so these both, they all lead to different sets of problems and different sets of concerns. Uh, it'll be interesting. Obviously, we don't know the full extent of how it will affect people. I've seen a lot of workplaces complain about people feeling disconnected and disjointed. Um, so it's, you know, there's some positive aspects and of course there's some negative aspects. So we just kind of, now that the seeds have been planted, we have to sort of understand what flowers are growing from them. What flowers or what weeds are coming up as a result? Yeah, and, and that's great. And sorry, I, I just threw that question in for you there just to give you a complete curveball. Um, <laughs> so, so what do you think are the downsides of not a paying, a paying attention to our mood? So we've talked about actually the importance of paying attention to them and actually the positivity and the, the benefit from that. But what's the problem about ignoring our moods? Okay, so I have two points on this. Mm -hmm. And one of them I think is probably the most important most important point I learned in all of my years of schooling. Um, the way our brain is organized or the dynamics is to uh, save cognitive energy. So our brain, in order to make us an efficient survival machine, which is the brain's entire function, it only cares about getting us alive at the end of the day. And if we're alive at the end of the day, it's like, I've totally done my job. Don't change it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Like you're alive, don't complain. <laughs> what, what more do you want? So in order to do this, the brain automates behavior. So we don't tie, we don't learn every day how to tie our shoes. We don't learn every day how to walk. We take on behaviors and they become automated. And, and automatic, which I think is the same word. But what happens is we don't have to start from scratch every day. And just as it does that with motoric behaviors, it also does it with emotional behaviors. And the way our brain operates is it likes to cast a really wide net, right? So just to be protective. There was a study done in the 30s um, with this baby Albert about fear, negative fear conditioning, right? Where they wanted to see if they could scare, create an automated response, fear response to objects. So they put a a rabbit in front of this poor kid. And obviously this would never hold up against ethical standards today, but the, the learnings are good. Um, they put him in front of a rabbit and would make a hideous noise every time he saw the rabbit. So the, the baby began to associate the rabbit with fear. And even without the noise, it would see the rabbit and start crying. But then what they learned was that it wasn't just the rabbit at that point, it was anything white and furry. And so it casts a very big, like I said, we have a negativity bias and it's all about learning to survive. So the brain casts a very wide net of, I'm just gonna assume that all white furry things are bad. So when we have negative emotional experiences, it isn't limited to, oh, that one day, at that restaurant in that place happened to be bad. Like our brain doesn't have the ability to contextualize what's happening to us. It's like Italian restaurant in Portugal, bad. Italian restaurant, I don't like Italian food, right? That's just like kind of how it does. 
And so it automates these behaviors. And so any behavior that you repeat, the brain will rewire itself to make that behavior automatic. And once it's automatic, you don't even realize it because it's just happening. Like maybe the first time you had a fight with your mother-in-law and you're like, well, the second time it was, you had tension before going to see her. The third time it was like, at home, you know, and it gets earlier and earlier to the point where it's enough that you see the woman's name on the phone and you're like already mad, even though nothing's happened, even though there's no conversation, no situation. And so what this means is that your negative mood can quickly become a habit, which then becomes a mindset, which then becomes your personality. And as a result, there's all sorts of physiological damage that happens to the body um, as a result. High, like we said, heart problems, digestion problems, uh, diabetes issues, the, the list is, is quite long. Um, and so being aware and being able to get out of those bad moods is really, really fundamental. And, and that's, that's so interesting, isn't it? And it, it's, um... Sometimes I have this uh, thought that we should be teaching neuroscience and psychology as a, uh, a subject to our children. Children, uh, 100%. They, it's because I, you think of the damage that, uh, that the social environment as a teenager does to you. If you could be prepared for that environment before you get there, we'd have great adults turning up at the other end, wouldn't we, compared to... Absolutely. Yeah. I think that if we were taught how our brain works, and, and to be fair, we, we're only just discovering and what neuroscientists know about the brain, there's still as much, if not more, that they still don't know. Um, but if we were taught these dynamics, they're so simple, right? And they're so like, if I told you, hey, if you keep repeating that, that's going to become a really nasty habit. You might change your behavior before it happens, right? Once the behavior is set, then you kind of get into a place of cognitive dissonance where you want to keep doing it because it's habitual. And so anyone who tells you like quitting smoking, it's like, why would anybody smoke fully knowing that it's terrible for them? But it, it's such a habit now that now they kind of have to defend it. And, and so they find justifications. It's like, oh, well, the cars will kill me, right? Like mm. e equally insane arguments. But that's what happens. We get, once it's set as a habit, then we have to defend it because it's now part of our personality. That's so interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, um, I, I feel an, another conversation just about to start, but unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. But, um, but no, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And I think with that negative bias, negativity bias that we have, it's, it's, if we don't start doing some conscious work on our moods and our triggers, etc., then you could see how over time you would slip towards more of a negative personality than actually the, the opportunity that comes with it, being able to control your moods and manage your moods. Absolutely. In fact, there's other scientific research <clears throat> that shows that it takes one, so to kind of hardwire something in your brain, it takes one negative experience to hardwire something positive, it can take anywhere from three to seven times. So the net, we are just, we love the negative because we think our brain thinks that by being aware of the negative, it's helping us survive better, which it is, but it's not helping us thrive because 
it's ultimately up to us to kind of take the reins of our brain. Again, not something we were ever taught that we needed to do to say, hey, that experience is an isolated experience and we don't know how it's going to be in the future. It could be completely different. So don't cast this shadow. Don't let this experience project onto an entire future, which is what we tend to do right now. It's fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, I would love to carry on this conversation, but I can see the time ticking away on our podcast here. But before we go, uh, one one question: What is there's like some best? Are there one or two best practices around mood management that you could share with our listeners that actually you think would help them? Yes. So um, obviously, being aware of your triggers is where it starts. Um, that is the first step to being able to get a handle on it, to understanding what, what is it that sets me off? Um, what is it that causes me stress? <clears throat> Excuse me. And then even digging into that a little bit, like why, what am I afraid of? Like do an interview with yourself of I'm afraid to like that example I gave to you at the beginning, if I sent you in to teach kids to color, you wouldn't freak out. But if I sent you in to talk to Boris Johnson, you might have a different response. So then to say, okay, well, what about that scares me? What do I think is going to happen? Why am I nervous? What are like, what, when, then if I'm nervous about that, what can I do to prepare for it better? So to really understand your triggers and try and create a strategy, uh, an overriding strategy that when it happens to you, you're like, oh, I know how to respond to this. And the second I would say is to make um, a, like a content playlist, music is the fastest way to change your mood, music and laughter actually. So if you have like a favorite comedy clip that you know snaps you out of your mood, keep that on your phone and watch it every time you're in a bad mood. Even just, <clears throat> it just takes a small mechanism to shut off the stress response. Then it'll take a little bit to like come down completely. But it, if you can just turn it off that is so important because when you leave it open, it's like a running faucet, right? And it create, ends up creating systemic damage. Um, so you want to kind of intervene as quickly as possible. And you can use, like make a playlist. Um, I also have playlists there for people if they want to get happier, calm down or whatever. But make a playlist of your own favorite music or a YouTube playlist of things that make you laugh that you can kind of go to in, uh, in an instant. And those are just so, some of the easiest ways to intervene really quickly. And, and that's a fantastically great idea because it's something simple that we can all do in some way or form right yes. here, right today and, and, and start doing that. And I like your idea about questioning yourself because you could almost like write a, a set of questions and just store it on your phone. Uh, and actually, when you feel like you, your emotions are being triggered, actually just pull it up on your phone and start working your way through these diagnostic questions. Why am I feeling like this? What else is going on? Yes. Um, and 90 percent of the time it's a fear-based response that can show up as anger or can show up as sadness but in some way shape or form it's fear um and so and it's always correlated to an earlier life experience and so it's just a matter of kind of like digging into that like what am i afraid of here like why am i reacting this way uh, what is scaring me what can I do to make myself feel safe in that situation? Because that's all the brain wants for you. It wants you to be safe. When it's when it flips that switch of freak out, 
it thinks it's helping you, but then sometimes, you know, we talk back to our boss or we mouth off at someone we shouldn't have. And that creates a whole other set of consequences and effects. And then we're afraid we're going to mouth off to our boss. So now we're, we're walking into meetings, tiptoeing. So it's really about understanding like, where's my fear coming from and what can I do to make myself feel safe in that situation? That's fantastic. And that's a, that's a great place for a sentence, I think, to, to finish this podcast on. But one quick one. If people are really interested in what you're saying, like I am, Erica, where's the best place to go and find out more about you and your thinking? Well, you can find me on the web, on the World Wide Web at www.moodily.com. Um, otherwise, I'm on Instagram at moodily.wellness. Uh, you can drop by LinkedIn. I'm on there, Erica First. There's also Moodily there. Um, and we have Facebook, all, all the usual. I'm not on TikTok, though. I can't do it. I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, fantastic. I mean, I, I have to say, the, the conversations we had before we even started recording, I love the fact you need to bring laughter out because we were doing a bit of laughing before we even started today. So thanks ever so much for joining me. The, the subject is so interesting, and I think it's so useful to people around us so thank you ever so much for giving up the time today thank you for having me no worries well that's it for now everyone uh, you can always find out more about the topics we discuss at tapsolutions.com but thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with another tap talks hr podcast goodbye